Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... So great. Thank you so much for joining me, Karen Rands, for this Compassionate Capitalist podcast and video today. Uh, as you know, if you've been listening to any of my, my videos or my podcasts in the past, you know, one of our big things, and if you're new to it, one of our big purposes of this show is to propel this concept of getting more people to diversify their portfolio and include investing in entrepreneurs, the private capital into the private companies of entrepreneurs and gaining confidence in doing that. That's why I wrote the book as a primer, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing. If you're not watching the video, I just pointed to my book. Uh, and I wrote that as a primer. And then within that, I always, you know, I try to get people to adjust to new, you know, a new way of thinking of not investing based off of emotion, but this process of due diligence. And I just did a, a podcast you know, a couple of weeks ago about due diligence and this due diligence tool. And it's always this thing. And a lot of times you have angel investors that say, well, the reason why you want to be in an angel investor group is because due diligence is easier because you've got more people sitting around the table with different experiences. And it's still this sort of mamby kind of, I don't want to say mamby pamby, but it's, you know, it's a squishy way of going about making a decision about an investment when you can, um, you know, really, I mean, every investment has a level of risk in it. The perception of angel investing and venture capital investing is that it's one of the riskiest, but it doesn't really have to be that way. And so the reason why you're listening today is because my guest, Joe Millam of AngelSpan, has broken the code, so to speak. He is bringing Wall Street principles and disciplines in the way that they analyze stock picks and the way hedge funds end up always making a return. There's always, you know, these certain ones, there's, there's a methodology to it. And he's going to talk about how he's using that through AngelSpan to the benefit of venture funds, to the benefit of companies, and the benefit of angel investors, you know, entrepreneurs that are raising capital. Because one of the things that I always coach entrepreneurs on is this thing called transparency. And there's a certain amount of expectation that public companies have transparencies because they're required by law as a public company and, and private companies don't necessarily, they're not obligated to it. So the burden's on the investor to get that information out. But it's, it's in the interest of the entrepreneurs to be transparent, but sometimes that can be a challenge. So reason why Joe is an expert on this and he has both insights of the capital markets of Wall Street and the behaviors of venture capital and angel investors because he sat at both of those tables. He sat at both sides of those tables. For probably 30 years, he spent time as um, a financial manager, analyzing public markets, uh, working with the wealthiest people on how to grow their asset portfolio portfolios and their wealth. And then he's been an angel investor. He's participated in angel investor groups all of those things. And he'll tell us more, but I want to say hello, Joe. Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast. Thank you for having me. And that was a very generous introduction. So, yeah. Absolutely. So, so Joe and I have been connected for a while through LinkedIn. And then we had the opportunity when I went to Austin, I, I guess it's been over a year now, um, mm -hmm. to sit down and talk. And he was telling me, although he was very, very excited about the time. And I was like, wow, that's really ambitious. And uh, he is, you know, uh, as you'll learn in listening to him on this show, there is no mountain that's too high for Joe to climb. <laughs> and, uh, and he really, truly is onto something that can change the marketplace for the better. So let's get into it because here's what, uh, well, let me ask you first, is there anything you want to fill in the gaps about your background and your experience that has set the stage for what we're going to talk about? Yeah, I'll just give a little bit of, of clarity, some finer points for clarity's sake for some of your listeners or, or viewers that are familiar with my old industry because it's and where I did it, which, which I think is really important and contributes to context. 
but I was a fee-based registered investment advisor. Um, we were an old school firm in that we actually did our own securities research and built portfolios for wealthy folks uh, with individual securities. So it's a little bit of the old school way of managing money. Okay. Um, I joined a firm in 1990 that was uh, owned by a European bank and, um, and then ended up taking the business over in 93 when my predecessor died uh, of cancer. So long story short, the, the, the irony is we happened to be located right there at 3000 Sand Hill um, in the early 90s before the internet became commercialized and all hell broke loose in the angel and venture world. So as an old school money manager, as it's called, um, we had a front row seat to the modern era of the very things we're talking about. And it was really the, that background and that position, location and timing that really informs a lot of what, what we'll be discussing today. Okay, very good, great. All right, so now, um, one of the things that I talk about in my book you know, I guess when I do the next version, I'm going to have to talk about, about it differently because I know new information now. But, you know, we always talk about, um, you know, this, this average of 10 companies. And when, and, and in my book, I advise people that, you know, when you figure out there's a process through the resource portal that we have, it says, how much capital do you have to invest? If you're going to, you know, and therefore you've got to, you know, this stage a company based on the amount of capital you have and so on and so forth. But don't even get started if you're not going to do at least five companies and have the cash on hand to do or plan to how you have the cash over a period of time to do at least five. It's really 10, but I didn't want to scare people off, so I used five. But the, the scenario that we always talk about with 10, and it's kind of been derived from the venture capital market, is that out of 10 investments, you're going to th go have three that go belly up, three that are going to be kind of like basics. Three that will do pretty darn good, but you know, and then the one that's going to hit it out of the park could make it all work. And the whole, the caveat on that is if everybody's trying to pick the one, but clearly that they have this as their example of what to expect, nobody knows how to pick the one. And so it's all about diversification and this idea of due diligence. And I always say, well, you know, the, particularly when companies are raising capital, if you've got seasoned investors, they've lost money on stuff because of this scenario. And so they always have this checklist of I'm never doing that again. Oh, how come I didn't ask about this? Oh, you know, these kind of things. And then some of the stuff you think like, why didn't you ask about that basic stuff? And so you, when we talked the other day, you gave me some insight about venture capital that I want you to share with the audience now about why that model is so not even just old school, but just, you know, it, it's so obsolete and why people adhere to it is just really amazing, particularly with what you're working on. Uh oh, we lost your sound. There we go. Yeah, I'm happy to. And if the background noise is too loud, let me know here, okay? If okay. it's disruptive. Um, yeah, they, again, and, and a lot of uh, investors or venture capitalists claim they like more data but when the data on their own industry is presented to them, they kind of look the other way because it's, to use Al Gore's famous phrase, it's an inconvenient truth. <laughs> yeah. That the uh, venture model itself is tired. Uh, mm -hmm. It's 60 years old um, and it's largely unchanged. Um, there's a lovely book that came out last July written by the uh, professor of entrepreneurship at Harvard's Business School, Tom Nicholas, called VC in American History. And he gives a wonderful account of the history of the venture industry. He gives a wonderful context. And he speaks to this very fact on page 311, that there's been remarkably little innovation in the very industry that purports to fund innovation. Yeah. <laughs> so this is not an opinion. This is a, a learned uh, observation from a historian of the industry, Tom Nicholas. Um, and so, yeah, you can beg the question why, and we can probably spend a whole other podcast on that topic as to why it hasn't changed much. But the reality is it hasn't, and it needs to. Um, back 60 years ago when entrepreneurship was largely concentrated in Boston and, and Silicon Valley, a small cadre of funds, many of which they knew each other, were involved with a small number of startups located in those cities. And that old model was sufficient for that very um, cottage industry back then. 
unfortunately, again, the structure and the process of, of identifying and, and doing due diligence and architecting venture portfolios is largely unchanged. Now, there is some innovation, which we'll talk about. People have been trying to bring some innovation to it. And again, the industry is really reluctant to admit that their model is 60 years old and tired. So the innovation is coming slow. We're bringing innovation to the model itself. And directionally, we're bringing the tools and, and proven tactics uh, that has been long since practiced in the public markets to manage risk, to build and architect and manage portfolios. So you have confidence you're gonna deliver risk adjusted returns for your investors, what's right. called alpha. Um, and so that's really the thesis behind how we're bringing innovation directionally. Um, and we're using long since proven tools and tactics. So we're not creating new models and we're leveraging some relatively new research and data to plug in on sort of the, the thesis itself, such as what is proper diversification of a venture fund? You know, if you think uh, the work that's for years been accepted as, as sort of the de facto standard uh, in the public markets is, if you had a portfolio of 15 to 20 companies, all of which were uncorrelated, that's enough diversification of individual holdings in a publicly traded portfolio. Well, meaning like they're in different industries, so they don't impact each other. That's right. The movement of one isn't highly correlated to the movement of another one. You, they need to be uncorrelated in their industries and their behavior patterns. That is proper diversification, because the goal of diversification is to manage what is called non-systematic risk, company-specific risk. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. That's called non-systematic risk. Now that's in the public markets. Now you hear a lot of conversations in the private markets that if you've got 20 to 30 private securities in your venture portfolio, you're okay in your diversification, which doesn't even intuitively make sense given that it's a lot riskier asset class. And that's only marginally more diversification. And so often these VC firms themselves have a thesis that they're, that they're investing around, which means most of the companies are highly correlated around that thesis. Yeah, right. They're just not properly diversified right. at, at a fundamental uh, uh, core. Now, what's shocking is, and there's lots of great research, 500 startups did some great research on this, by the way, and it was been confirmed by two other organizations. Um, one is CircleUp, who's also, by the way, I want to give them a shout out because they're doing some really good research mm -hmm. and bringing Wall Street-like disciplines, principally in their thesis, is around um, CPG, or consumer products goods startups but they're philosophically identical to what we're gonna be speaking to today. Proper diversification. For a seed stage portfolio, that should have between 100 and 200 companies. Mathematic yes. Mathematically, that's been proven through uh, very sophisticated Monte Carlo simulations using actual return data um, to optimize on the diversification without diluting the impact that a, a, a really good winner would have on the overall returns of the portfolio. So it's that balancing act of enough diversification without too much. Yeah. So I want to I want to touch on that right now, and I want to I had told I want to make sure that folks listening that as you come through this, and we're going to talk about this uh, how it applies to venture funds and individual investors and how they could benefit from this. But the whole goal of this conversation today, and the goal of what Angelspan is doing, is to learn how to deploy capital with confidence. Without, you know, there is a certain level, there will always be a certain level of fear of losing it, but there's a way to avoid the big mistake using the kind of things that, that Joe's talking about. And to that, the thing that a lot of times when you think about the traditional flow of capital, right, there's the seed stage and then there's a series A and usually VCs come in after that and VCs, a lot of times their philosophy is, oh, we got this $100 million fund, so we could only manage X number of companies in that. So therefore we could only put five to 10 million, you have to be 10 million into it. Therefore they have to be this amount of valuation and so on and so forth because they feel like they have to manage into the day-to-day -day operations. So they're naturally further up the food chain, if you will, and all this risk gets associated. And the reason why there's so much more capital deployed at angel stage versus VC stage you know, as far as number of companies is because they kind of all go in their lanes. And what Joe's going to talk about with their approach, it really upends that whole philosophy and takes that risk out of how you invest in the seed stage and then build your portfolio to do this, this mitigating risk piece of it that he's going to talk about. So 
I wanted to set the stage on that and, and, and kind of remind people that because sometimes I'll talk to entrepreneurs and they'll be like, oh, I just need a VC. And it's like, oh, well, you're too early to get a VC because a VC is going to invest this amount of money. And that's more than what your whole company is worth right now. Right. So uh, so to roll into this philosophy and also, you know, you're kind of you're, Austin is a real hotbed of venture of, of angel activity and entrepreneur startup that you know is really it's a very dynamic ecosystem there but you're also very tightly coupled coupled with you know you mentioned uh 500 startups and these other ones and i think y combinator and these other things that you've been involved with so you know the mentality out of silicon valley and when as you go into that i want you to address this idea of you know the celebrity vcs right where there's some of them part mm -hmm. of the of the panache is that they know how to pick them right and that's why people put their money with them and they and it's sometimes it's, they just kind of got lucky they kind of got into the the right thing at the right time because who knew that uber would have been what uber is or whatever you know at that time versus something else you know it's like oh they invested in company a and not company b and company a happened to win right and so there's a, so many of those um intangibles and i and i wonder how much that keeps the industry where it is versus embracing some of the innovation and, and best practices. Well, well, let's talk about that. Yeah, I think you've, you've opened up that can of worms uh, with that last question. And, <laughs> and I think it's an important point for your listeners because to your, the phrase you use is celebrities, uh, the celebrity culture. And, and I think that entrepreneurs and others, when they hear somebody's a VC, they, they instantly give them far more um, legitimacy or credit or presume they have far more investment experience and acumen than they do. Um, the venture industry itself, even though the National Venture Capital Association, the, the organizing body of the, of the industry, it's been around since 73, um, the VC industry itself still is an apprenticeship. It's like a guild. An apprenticeship. It's not a profession. And what I mean by that is there are no professional standards, no formal training, no, no industry-provided certifications, curriculum to show you how to even know what non-systematic risk is and how to manage it, what are the levels of diversification, how do you manage the number one risk of investing in this asset class. Number one, and if you ask most VCs, they wouldn't know it or would admit they know it, and that is simply timing. <laughs> and everything else was perfect and something like COVID shows up. Or right. Or, or, or the founder of a company did all this great research on got caught for sexual harassment. Or, oh, yeah. Or, or divorce or death. Or So these are all called, that's called systematic risk. Timing risk is the number one thing that defines the uh, success or failure of an individual company's outcomes and the asset class itself just like in the public markets. You could have built a perfect portfolio of stocks in late February, and a month later, your portfolio got crushed. Right? Right. Mm -hmm. You could have done perfect research, perfect diversification, and your returns got crushed. Why? Because the markets got collapsed because of an exogenous event. So these are, that's an issue that's critical, and VCs aren't trained to know that or to care about that. Or to have a, a fallback on a contingency strategy, right? No, there, there's a lot of, let's just call them perverse incentives to spend as much money as quickly as they can so they can hurry up and go raise their next fund. That's right. a large model. So for your mm -hmm. listeners, do not think of a VC as being more uh, experienced than you are or more capable than you are. And another way to, when, when, I also, when you think of one VC, you know one VC because they're all so different. And the way I visualize them in my own mind is they're like schools of fish. <laughs> and if they're a seed stage VC firm or a micro VC fund, they're gonna be a seed stage. Those are smaller fish, yeah. right? And if they're later stage, they might be a, a, like a big school of bluefin tuna, right? Bigger VC firms, later stage, because those fish have to eat bigger fish to survive. Or the small fish, the small VCs, can write smaller checks on earlier stage deals. but just like those schools of fish, they oftentimes all move together. There's yeah. not a lot of independent thought going on amongst VCs because so many of them co-invest with somebody else that they're presuming has more experience and has done better due diligence on this company than they have. Yeah. Uh, those 
Well, I remember early on when I was in this uh, space, Guy Kawasaki came into Atlanta and um, had a, a speech that he gave. I think it was at one of the MIT forums. And he said he was talking kind of reflectively on the dot com. And he said that fear of missing out drives a lot of the VC investments. And they Still go. Does. And they go, oh, that guy down, that VC down the road, they invested in a pet supply thing online. So let's go find one that we can invest in because it must be a good sector because they did it. So therefore we should do it. And it really has nothing to do with the metrics That's of right. the company and That's what right. your, your revenue model is going to be or what, or is it right or wrong and all that stuff. So Let's get into this idea, and it kind of folds into due diligence piece, right? And um, and and the traditional way, because there's sure, yeah, they got incorporation documents, they got a financial sheet, they got a balance sheet, they've got employee agreements, they got you know, there's little pieces of paper and things like that. They got an IP, a patent applied for, a patent pending, you know, these kind of things. And you described it so perfectly the other day about comparing it to, you know, building a company with building a house a or a building. So, mm -hmm. so yeah. share that, please. Yeah. And, and I, again, I think you, you bring up an important point that, um, and I like to, my mind thinks in pictures, so I'll try and speak a little bit in pictures or metaphors, is that businesses um, are almost like cars, right? You got to have the tires, the engine, the transmission, the brakes, the roof, the windows, all those sorts of pieces. And that's like having your corporation papers done and your employee documents in place and all those sort of organizational infrastructure components. Money is like the gas, right? And the engine and the torque of the engine and the velocity of the forward movement of the business is like what gear they're in, almost like what stage of the startup life cycle they're in. So again, in terms of, uh, and just like a car, that's sort of like a business, but to build that business is not unlike building a building. You've got to, build foundational work first, get your corporation done, get your term sheets, your legals done properly, get your books set up properly, get some good outside counsel to make sure that doesn't get screwed up and, and you can't hide anything, right? That's the absence of transparency and all those sorts of things is what allows for bad behavior to materialize. Um, and each stage of those are important value creation milestones, even though they're not reflected in income, revenue, expense, stuff like that. They're just salary often, salaried expenses oftentimes and, and vendor expenses. But they're still converting investor cash to value inside this construct of this idea that will eventually become a building or a business. And that business then, as it's building its pieces, it's sort of adding both gears and cylinders to the engine, right? Early stage, seed stage, you got one gear, you're trying to get a little bit of forward momentum. Not even very quick, you're just trying to get it to move forward. And then once you get a little bit of cash, you prove that the, uh, the, you're actually able to deliver something that somebody was willing to pay for, right? Then you wanna add some more cylinders to that engine, build a bigger gas tank, add a couple more gears by raising more money so you can move forward faster with more velocity and more girth, more mass, if you will. So these are sort of the metaphors, but each of those stages are absolutely important stages for an investor to make sure that you are going to minimize your chances of that car never completely getting built or never moving forward, you want to manage risk. Don't think of how fast that car is eventually gonna become. It's gonna be a Ferrari and it's gonna go 200 miles an hour and I'm gonna make a ton of money off of it. What a really silly assumption. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even know who's gonna be driving that car. That CEO is rarely the CEO that's gonna be driving it if it ever gets to that point. So right. you're making so many emotional assumptions, wishful thinking, greed, fear of missing out, whatever you want to call it, they're generally emotion-driven um, rationalizations for writing too big a check too soon in that life cycle of that company. Yeah. It's just... It goes to that term. I remember the first time I heard the term dry powder. I was like, right. dry powder? And it's like, oh, yeah, that's the money that the VCs and angel investors should do it too. They always say, keep back in order to invest in the ones that look like they're going to make it right yeah. and that in yeah. that portfolio or stuff right and so i always thought well you know that goes to that whole 10 company model right and so your approach uses this idea that just like when you're building there's certain steps along the way that you can measure the progress and turn that into a quantitative value 
and yeah. a qualitative value that says, you know, the things that kind of where due diligence ends, they got a checkbox that they got this document or this document or this thing, and they got this team and he's got that experience or he's got, you know, this market or this is their competitors, this is the size of the market, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff that are kind of like the standards of what you evaluate a company on when they're first kind of getting started. But it's really what happens after that is whether your investment's going to tank or not. Those kind of things are kind of, you know, it's sort of like, it's the checklist. It's just a checklist. It doesn't really, it's not a predictor truly of where they're going to go. So if you, you know, you like the idea, you like the passion, and this comes back to what compassionate capitalism is. If you like the passion of that entrepreneur, you love that you like it. Oh my God, I really can't believe nobody else thought of that product. It totally makes sense. And so there's that emotional side of it, but the capitalist side of you says, I'm going to check these boxes and I got this. And then you're kind of like, all right, cross your fingers. Let's hope, you know, it's rolling dice. Let's hope that this thing works. And your, your process is a little bit different. It takes it to a whole nother level of, you know, providing analytics to be able to know where do you go from there. And even within the context, like I'm fascinated with the fact, and I've seen some of this with artificial intelligence things, but they didn't have the, the history that you have to be able to create that risk model that says this, these are the scores and the things that will work because we have this history of what we know yeah. what has worked. Well, one of the best metaphors for, um, or parallels, I should say, uh, is, is that whole concept of money ball. Because if you, if you understand how that evolved, it was the old baseball scouting infrastructure where those in the field scouts who were able to convince the major league team owners to pay their salary so, because they know how to spot a good deal. Yeah. They need out in the field because they've got contacts and they've got a Rolodex and they got a network of people out there helping them find those hot deals of baseball prospects. And notwithstanding the historical track record of that scouting system being really bad, right? Getting them to the teams to sign a high school pitcher to an ungodly dollar amount because you don't want to lose this one because your competitor's going to get them. Fear of missing out. Yeah. And those outcomes are just consistently wasted dollars where Moneyball comes in and says, wait a second here, don't trust the optics or those perverse incentives of people who think they can pick winners. Right. Use data and take a portfolio approach to the team. Assemble a portfolio of players that's going to optimize the win-loss record per dollar spent to assemble the team. ROI. Right. What a concept, right? And that's really the concept. So now if you take out baseball scout and put in venture capitalist, it's almost identical. The perverse incentive are the investors, the LPs. We know how to spot deals. I've got a Rolodex. I got people out there. I'm connected to the network and trust me with your money because I'm going to spend it well, notwithstanding the track record and the data. And so when you take a half step back and as an investor are willing to acknowledge the fact that you can't pick winners, that's a hard thing to admit because it's a lot of fun to think you can. It's really good for the ego and it's fun to get in there and ask those questions and try and forecast what the future might look like and then place some bets on green and red and black. <laughs> what the, who, which of these companies might really have an impact on the future. But the reality is that doesn't result in good investment outcomes. So if you want to gamble, go for it. It's fun. But if you want to be serious about it, First, you've got to manage risk. Risk oftentimes of your own decision-making process. It's called decision risk. It's one of the biggest risks in consistently de- delivering investment results. Right. Some of your listeners, I think you've spoken, are, are some high, uh, high-calibered CEOs or retired CEOs and the like. Well, if they had a pension plan, they had consultants that would go out and find money managers to manage those pension plans. And the rigors that those consultants went through to hire the money managers of the retirees' pension plan for those companies was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And across styles, you each one of those money managers had broadly diversified strategies with track records, risk management mechanisms in place. That's how serious money is managed. And what we're suggesting is you can, as an individual, start deploying some of those basic blocking and tackling things from a risk management perspective first. And the number one thing is to require evidence of transparency from any startup you're going to spend any time with. Full stop. Full stop. 
don't invest in any company that can't give you three monthly updates from the last three months on what's going on inside the business. It is the most, one of the most powerful risk management tactics any investor can make in this asset class. Yeah. Well, let's, I, I want to go, let's, I'm going to flip over to a chart that you have in a presentation. If you got, and if any people are listening in the show notes, um, there's a link to some presentations, some videos that explain a lot of this in more detail than the time we have here to, to cover it. And also the, the presentation, the, uh, just a couple of charts that I'm going to show here. And this one is, the, is that idea of transparency and the kind of reports that you use that show. And then I'm going to flip as you're talking to the one that shows the uh, building your portfolio. So you can okay. tag team on those that show this is how you, you go. I want, to, want them to see these reports you're talking about that are transparency. And what you do that helps an investor decide, do we do the next investment? How do we go about doing sure. that? Okay. So what does proper transparency look like? Yes. <laughs> right. And, it's, and it is, I have so many companies that I've worked with over the years that they couldn't raise that next round or go before they went to the VC and interim round with angels because they had not been transparent. If you don't tip, investors are very tolerant if you let them know what your obstacles are, what your opportunities are, what your milestones and successes and things like that, they, as long as you're telling them what you're doing, they will stay with you through the process because they're familiar that this is the way it goes. So, all right. So this is the first one, right? So this is your proper transparency. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Those, those are the components of proper transparency and the, and the three main things that are the, the, the components are the bright cadence and well recognized that uh, once you're, you know, outside of an accelerator, which oftentimes they ask you to report weekly for their internal um, mentor network. But once you leave an accelerator and you think you've got enough momentum to maybe go out and find some seed, then monthly updates are absolutely critical. Less than that is not enough. More than that is probably overkill for potential investors and other stakeholders. You're trying to just keep their attention and crowd out all the other things that, that, that might, might be talking to them and, and that's gonna piss them off, it's too much. Once yeah. you certainly take money from somebody, you of course wanna report how you've invested it and that's what the quarterly reports represent. The, the communication of the financial outcome of the prior quarter to your investors and your board. The content's critical. Because again, this isn't a newsletter. This isn't just the puff piece with social media pictures and everybody wearing their t-shirt and feeling good about themselves on stage. This is talking about what went on inside the business. Right. Team, product, market, and operations are the foundations of any business. And you've got to build and hit milestones and all those at all the stages, addressing the things that are relevant and necessary on each one of those areas at each of the natural organic stages. And then context, which is where a lot of entrepreneurs, even if they're doing it, get it wrong because they end up writing way too much. They get so excited that they're comfortable doing it, then they end up writing tunes. And no one's going to read all that. Right. Now, the, the, uh, the dirty little secret of this, of the science behind communication theory and newsletters, is that if you get somebody to open up a communication like this, they're you've got their mind for about three and a half minutes. And they're going to remember about 20% of what they read. And you can't presume they read the whole thing, by the way. So they're going to remember about 20% of what they read for about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the science. Now, what does linger is the impression that's left behind. Sure. This, this is, it a, is it an upside or is it a downside? Is it good stuff or down stuff, right? And, and are they trending up or down and whatnot? If you want to optimize that thumbs up, consistent cadence, balanced scorecard of the activities going on, succinct and crisp in the writing style. Respect their time and mental bandwidth. That's what optimizes that impression that's left behind that thumbs up impression. Yeah. And so one of the things that I always tell companies, one of the companies I worked with for a long time and they were consistently able to raise money from pretty much the same group of investors till they got all the way through the process because everybody didn't want to be diluted anymore. So they all just kind of stayed in on it was because he did a monthly report. He did a weekly snapshot, like really short. This is, I, you know, they carried over last week. I told you we were going to be meeting with this customer. This is what happened. 
boom, like five point five bullet points. Right. And then he did a monthly thing. And because he was so, and you know what? He had been a former uh, 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 stock guy as well. It was knew about the importance of transparency in the courts, right? And so he, uh, and he just, it was amazing how they just kind of kept in. And every time they go, no, don't go out to VCs yet. We just want to, we want to keep staying in and get you through this because he was pivoting his business model and getting more, you know, validation from customers and he was doing all the right stuff and they didn't care that it was taking him longer to get to this, you know, miles no. revenue, right? So. No, there, there's a sort of a poster child for this, what you just described here in Austin, actually, his name's Rob Neville. And it's the company eventually went public called Savara Pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. He raised something on the order of $60 million. I think that's the number from angel investors. Wow. For like five, six rounds because he was unbelievably good at communicating monthly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And everybody said it. He was, Rob was the best. He is the poster child for what you described. Um, so anyway, um, yeah. the, the question really is why don't more entrepreneurs do it? That's really the issue. Well, that's the thing. It takes time. And they feel like, oh, well, they won't really, they're not really going to read it. it they think they need to over communicate instead of just having some kind of a standard operating thing. And of course, your tool, that's what you do. You know, you provide this information, you provide this as a service, an affordable service for entrepreneurs to be able to do that. So let's flip over and talk about like the decision process in a seed stage. And so those, those building blocks, if you will, of what we talked about earlier, and then how your, how a VC would use your, your program and your system for this to be able to make this mitigated risk growth of a portfolio. Okay. So let's go. Well, that's here. a, that's a, that's a big leap. And let me give a little context because you okay. just went from IR <laughs> to how we support VC funds. So, um, well, the yeah. strategy, Joe, I just want to, because the strategy that you have in the way that you're doing this, I think is if once investors understood this, even if they're individual investors, they could ap apply this. And have yes. the companies that they're investing in use your, as part of their condition of investing, they use your service, but they would have the comfort level of knowing when they're going to reinvest into the portfolio that they're building. So I know, you know, clearly VCs, they truly have a big portfolio of potentially, a, you know, a hundred companies or whatever, but. Most of them don't. <laughs> right, so. So yeah, I guess let me put some context to that then. Yes, what we've built are the tools to help both entrepreneurs and investors be more successful. Entrepreneurs, to help them be more successful, they need to communicate properly. Most of them know how to do it. So we established AngelSpan as a Wall Street-like investor relations service. It's not a do-it-yourself dashboard. There's a lot of coaching, a lot of hand-holding. We, we do most of the curation. We do a lot of the heavy lifting so that an entrepreneur can just keep spend the time building the business and have confidence or getting this communication process right. Right. Now, what that allows us to do because of the information that we are helping them report on is that we actually have created as a result of having access to inside information on our clients is we create a Wall Street-like research and, and uh, analytics that are then able to empower the investor side if they're expecting and requiring angel span on their portfolio companies, whether you're an active individual investor or you're running a syndicate or a broader venture fund, um, as long as you're having access and requiring angel span, then we avail these analytics for those investors for free. We want them to be better. We right. want them to be successful, which includes better risk management tactics as they're building properly diversified portfolios but also having the analytics to inform those follow-on investment rounds, which is the illustration you were just bringing up. Because this is really how to optimize on an outcome of a venture fund. Pragmatically, can everybody build a portfolio of 100 to 200? Not likely unless you build, use a lot of the other infrastructure tools we actually have built. So we have built tools to facilitate that. But that really means you're gonna be a professional VC. But for an individual, no, 100 is an aspiration but it's also an order of magnitude reference point. It's certainly better than more than five, right? Yeah, right. If you 25, that would be vastly better than five. Is it optimal at 100 to 200? No, but it's vastly better than five, especially if you have data on all 25 
and you are committed to doing follow-on funding on the superior subset of those 25 as the 10 to 15 of those 25 really start performing well enough to earn follow-on funding because mm -hmm. eventually you should write bigger checks in those follow-on rounds than you did in the first the checks you wrote on the original 25. Okay, so let me ask you within this context is it says because a lot of times the follow-on says, okay, they've got this many eyeballs or they've got this much revenue and therefore they can grow faster, we give them more money and revenue becomes the criteria or some metrics like that. And what you're looking at with, with the way you do the analytics or like, not you personally, but the way your systems, our framework, the, yeah, your yeah. framework does the analytics, it's looking at a whole lot of other factors for longevity and performance than just revenue, right? Yeah, I mean, if, if you, again, I always go back to Wall Street and forgive me, but if there are a, a group of investors on Wall Street that only invest in high growth companies that have accelerating revenue, that is their only investment criteria, okay? Now that is a style of investing that is very episodic in its success. <laughs> high growth companies, that was the go-go 90s. Janus yeah. 20 was an example of that out of Denver. They ran a mutual fund called Janus 20. They had 20 companies, the fastest revenue going, growing companies, publicly traded growth, uh, tech stocks. And by God, that portfolio screamed for about two years. And then it ex imploded and was down like 85% in the crash, right? So, very narrowly defined investment criteria like you just described can work for oftentimes very narrowly defined windows in time. The methodology that, that we have deployed to analyze startups is ubiquitous across business model, um, stage of the startup life cycle, and these are proven analytics to, def to be able to view objectively with and create longitudinal data to analyze startups. Now that's never been available on startups because everybody's got their own little secret sauce of investing or due diligence criteria. This is a standardized way, just like the Wall Street tools are standardized ways to evaluate income statements and balance sheets. Calculate EBITDA, for example. Um, so this is a, a very robust way. Now, if you want to apply these analytics in a thematic approach to venture, that would work just fine. Okay, so we're not saying those are wrong. I can certainly challenge these episodic thesis investing uh, as saying you're likely going to underperform for your investors uh, as happens we've seen happen time and time again in the public markets but having said that the analytics yes we have make sure that you're tracking all the relevant value creation drivers across each stage of the startup life cycle and then how you want to focus in your thesis of investing that would be up to the investor yeah well and part of your developing this the these models the systems to do this, you were able to test them and use and build upon the historic data of companies that have succeeded and failed, right? Yeah. Yeah, the original architect of this model, and again, it's not our model. It, it's really important to keep objectivity in each component of our model. And because it's not our model, I don't have any pride of authorship. Okay, it's really important. But the model itself was built by Gordon Bell and working with Coopers and Libran, the old uh, accounting firm that got absorbed into one of the big four, and a gal named Heidi Mason, who Gordon met years and years ago when he was at Digital Equipment Corp. He was the inventor of the mini computer, actually. And he taught computer science at Carnegie Mellon and put that program on the map. I mean, he's a rock star if you look up his Wikipedia. I would, I would encourage you to put his Wikipedia in your, um, in your notes. He's a fascinating guy. Um, but he went out to Silicon Valley and found there's a lot of good startups, a lot of good technologists trying to start companies, but they didn't know how to build a business to successfully monetize this good idea. So he worked with Coopers and Library and Heidi and said, there's got to be a way to architect a roadmap, a sequence of steps, such that if the entrepreneur does these milestones and does them completely across all the relevant components of the business, team, product, market, and operations, and hits the right milestones in the right sequence, at the end of this natural sequence of milestones, you'll have a self-sustaining business. So if you're struggling with any of those, accomplishing those milestones, you know what you've got to focus on. And you shouldn't move forward on other areas until you get that solved. Otherwise, you're like building, starting to build one side of a building and not completing building the other side, right? <laughs> yeah. Building things in their proper sequence. So yeah, he had that uh, architected, back-tested over thousands of companies. It was the de facto standard uh, research uh, framework on the old guard venture firms like Mayfield Fund and IVP and some of the old guard guys, because Gordon built it in the 80s. 
Uh, he's still alive today. He lives in San Francisco. He's an investor in AngelSpan. We have the Bell Mason diagnostic in the inner workings. So that's what structures our monthly updates and gives us the framework to create these analytics as we score them across the Bell Mason every month. And that's the longitudinal analytics that we avail to people that want to, ha want to manage their venture activity with rigor with a risk management approach first. Mm -hmm. It's the golden goose that lays the golden eggs. Repeatedly. Yeah, so let's look at this. Let's go back to that chart now and look at this, this idea of how, you know, people talk about diversifying a portfolio and it's like, oh, you're gonna take 25% out and you're gonna put it into private equity or into angels, but you're talking, so when you have decided this is your chunk of funds, so to describe this chart, and for the, for the folks that aren't able to see the visual on it, again, it's in the, the link to the thing, and it is page nine out of that presentation called Data Supported Funding Strategy. So go ahead. Yeah, and, and I'll try and describe it for the listeners as well. But what we're looking at is, is the body of it is illustrating the optimal way to deploy capital in, in, in venture uh, um, in startups over time knowing that you're going to invest in multiple rounds. You're not just going to be one and done in any one company. Okay. Now the base portfolio would, would, and on the left hand, right hand side of this, you'll see some dials and as in the bottom portfolio, it shows 10%, which indicates 10% should be roughly how much of your total dollars you were able to spend over a full funding cycle. 10% should go in your original portfolio. Now, a properly diversified base portfolio, we call it, should have between 100 and 200 companies. So if you're going to invest $100,000 over three rounds, then 10% of that's 10 grand. How are you going to put 10 grand in 100 companies? You really can't do it. You got to buy an ETF. That's why people have ETFs in the public markets. Small amounts of money get the benefits of diversification. Right. This is an aspirational strategy. Everybody can use components of this to implement their own, but it really is, if your returns are suboptimal, you could probably spot as to why somewhere within this illustration, what you didn't follow. Yeah. And that first portfolio should follow some theme or thesis. Now that's what shows on the left-hand side of this illustration shows what's motivating the assembly of these companies. It could be around an industry you like. It could be female entrepreneurs or African-American entrepreneurs, or entrepreneurs in your home city because you want to support the entrepreneurial activity in your city. That, that's a thesis all by itself, local entrepreneurship. So you need to have something around your thesis. It's really important because you need to have a reference point. You need to have structure to why you're going to invest in this company versus that company. Now, how you assemble that portfolio is literally making sure that who makes its way into that portfolio is not anybody you think is going to be a huge financial outcome. You're already fooling yourself. Right. You should let any of those companies enter that portfolio that have been de-risked, meaning they don't have the character traits of bad deals that have, because there's a big pile of failed startups that you can analyze and see what was the common traits amongst this huge pile of failed startups. And one could even suggest WeWork is on its way to a failed startup. Mm -hmm. Even though they tried to go public and they've raised a lot of money, they're dying. They're dying slowly, but they're dying. Theranos is another poster child for this. $900 million in multiple rounds, and she's going to jail because she was not transparent. Rupert Murdoch put $125 million in her last round and didn't ask for audited financials. That was a stupid investment decision. Isn't it amazing that you think people, just because they got all this money, they're so smart and you, and, and you look on the outside looking in. I mean, it is hindsight 2020, but it's like, come on, really? No, no, no. That is an easy thing to say. That was really, because what? He didn't want to miss out. It was the cool kids syndicate. Mm -hmm. Everybody was doing it. The Waltons were doing it and everybody was doing it. Yeah. And she was a glamorous blonde dame from Stanford and all the optics. Well, that's where a lot. That's where all these unicorns people get this pile on is, and they don't really have a lot of them don't have that business model that will sustain and actually create a value proposition in a public market. And there's no way to get an exit out of a unicorn except to go public. That pretty much that's correct. So, long story short, there's lots of lessons on what not to do, and that's how you build that first portfolio. And one of the key 
first steps, is, as we mentioned, is expect transparency. There's research in the materials that, that are also, um, um, Karen's gonna provide, that shows some great research on if you simply just invested in companies that were showing evidence of transparency. They don't have to be using AngelSpan. We're the best at it, and we have this companion analytics to go with it. Yeah. That's gonna be a great portfolio to be, just from a starting point around your uh, thesis. Yeah. And now, so then once you've got your, you're doing this because you're not static. So, no. I mean, maybe year one, but a lot of times, you know, with, with this is really for a venture fund itself, but for somebody that, you know, is, is building, you know, bringing in new companies into their portfolio each year, they have to adopt. And when I talk about the book, you have to adopt the thing that says, this is how much over this period of time. And then you're going to go into whether it's year two, but it's, it's the next phase of, when do these companies need money that you're going to approach yeah. it the way you're talking about? Yeah, and you want to make sure that the companies that uh, are in that base portfolio, however many you're able to get in there over a reasonable period of time, a year, two years, whatever, is that they remain transparent. That's one of your criteria for any investing round, not just the first one, but follow on as well. And they've earned that money by hitting milestones. Now, again, our platform does provide those objective analytics. But as Karen spoke of earlier, there was a guy who was able to raise a lot of money because he was really transparent about hitting milestones and communicating the process. So you make sure that that transparency expectation is part of each of your funding criteria. But by having transparency, you could also start looking at the portfolio and make your follow-on investment decisions driven by data, not by emotions. Always with evidence of transparency at each step. And that second portfolio is roughly 60% of your first portfolio but it will be two and a half times your original investment. Now, the reason that, that you make bigger bets sequentially as the portfolio gets more concentrated, that's right out of poker betting. It's called the Kelly Criterion. <laughs> it's a mathematical truism to optimize the return on all the capital deployed in a world of imperfect information and uncertain outcomes. Poker. How do you optimize on all your bets? knowing that you're not gonna just place a few bets and then walk away from the table. It's called, you, it's called the Kelly Criterion. So once you start getting an information advantage, i.e. transparency from companies and they're performing, you start making bigger bets. And then you just do that again as they're going after roughly their B round. And that's where your big dollars are invested in a concentrated portfolio that will result, result, uh, result in be about 20% of that original portfolio, but it's the best 20. And best is defined over time with data. And now you can have confidence to place the biggest bet there because you now have an information advantage. And you've had the timing risk largely mitigated. The number one indicator of success or failure is timing. And because these are still performing, as evidenced by the transparency in the data, you've now shown you've managed timing risk. And you've maintained diversification at each step. Now again, optimal diversification would be between 100 and 200 at the base portfolio your seed round, if you will, of between 60 and 120 at the A round and between 30 and 60 at the B round. That's optimal. Pragmatically, that's hard to do right now unless you had a huge portfolio uh, population of startups all using AngelSpan, which we don't have yet. We yeah. will soon. Okay. So I see we're kind of rounding the end here of, uh, of people's uh, potential for listening. <laughs> Yeah, and, sure. uh, so, you know, okay, so any um, things that you want to share as sort of that you, you oh, I should have said this or? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, the notes I, I put down, we just literally did sort of hit the, the sort of summary of best practices, diversification, expect transparency, diversification, dollar cost average, which sequentially higher bets. That is how you can optimize and deploy capital with confidence. The one piece that we haven't talked about, and um, it's an interesting subject that I've talked, I've been lecturing for over 20 years on these tax laws around angel investing. And I've, I've lectured CPAs, big family offices, off, Wilson Sonsini's office, both here and in San Francisco. Very few people know about these laws. They exist and they're available for taxable angel investors, whether you invest directly or through a fund. And they're called qualified small business stock tax incentives under two different sections of the tax code, section 1244 and 1202. So QSBS, Qualified Small Business Stock, 
under sections 1244 and 1202. 1244 is that law that says if you invest in a seed stage round where you're part of the first million dollars in a startup and it fails, you actually can deduct your loss against ordinary income. Ordinary income tax rates are a lot higher than the capital gains rates. Because if you take a capital loss, all you're doing is offsetting capital gains that you might have from selling real estate or stocks. And those gains would have only been taxed at 20%. But if you can write it off directly against your ordinary income, you're now only losing 60 cents on the dollar for a taxable investor at federal rates. You've just capped your downside. Risk management. All right, critical. So if I were an investor in startups, I would also make sure that they're QSBS qualified, which is not hard. Most startups, certainly the startups and most of their advisors don't know about it. Yeah, but is that a, like a form they fill out with their state or at the federal level or? No, I'll, the very basic criteria is this. The company itself has to be a C-Corp. LLCs don't count. And when you invest, you need to invest in an actual equity term sheet, not a safe note. Uh -huh. Stock. Convertible preferred, the old school term sheet, the basic convertible preferred term sheet. If it's a debt instrument, which is what a note is, it doesn't qualify. Uh, so convertible if, notes don't qualify when that's the first investment. If the, some safe notes I've heard attorneys putting, this is a QSBS qualified safe security. Okay, you can do that. But that means it's not a note. It's actually basically a safe preferred stock. You're just not putting a valuation on it. You're simply leaving the valuation off and waiting for the next priced round to define the valuation of that uh, convertible preferred stock. That's all. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, most states, a lot of states also have tax incentives for if you invest, if, you're, if that idea that you did, what you talked about before, your thesis is local investor investments, yeah, local companies. There's yeah. like state of Georgia has, um, I think there's a variety it's double, of it's double digits for, yeah. you know, we have our entertainment tax, but this is straight up equity, right. not real estate, you know, right. not certain kinds of industries, not the things that qualify for our entertainment tax credits. And then they get that investment taxable, the, uh, the a credit, uh, the percentage of the, of the, what they've invested to be applied against earned income taxes for the next two right. and a half, two years or something like that. Yeah, they're, they're, every state's got its own sort of incentives, economic development agency type incentives. These are specific at the federal level. They've been around, 1244 has been around since 1958. Yeah, you're right. I've, still, I've talked about it and you're not that many people know about it or that it's that easy to do it or that's the it, restrictions to do it. It's really easy. It's not hard to do. It's with a little bit of knowledge, it can be taken care of right up front. And then you don't have to worry about it. The other tax law that is a companion law, um, QSBS under section 1202, that was passed in 93. And that one has been updated as late as 2015. But what it says is if, again, I'm a taxable investor and I invest in a startup, whether I'm in the seed round or even later rounds, but it, and when I invest to the time there's a successful exit, if it takes more than five years, then I, as a taxable investor, pay zero taxes on the first $10 million of profits. Wow. Period. Period. That also qualifies for the founders of those companies as well. There's a lot of founders that pay taxes on their exit proceeds because their lawyers and accountants didn't know about 1244 or 1202. Founder shares qualify for 1202. If they started it and it took seven years to eventually got an exit, they wouldn't, and that's per shareholder. Every shareholder of a company has that $10 million max or 10 times your cost basis, whichever is greater actually. So if you put $2 million into a startup and it gets a huge exit, you've got $20 million of tax-free profits. 10 times your cost basis or 10 million, whichever is higher. So, so in, and, in, well, in those scenarios, so say somebody raised a friends and family round and um, and then they go to out to raise their first outside round. And again, assuming that they are, um, yeah, let's go back to talking about it. They assuming that they are um, doing it these ways. Is there any prohibited pro anything prohibiting them from being able to execute that if they didn't start that way because they started as an LLC and they did their convertible note 
and that kind of thing. And the next round, they do it as a, they convert it to a C corp. They're doing this preferred convertible. And so the ones that are in that particular round, not this other round, can potentially participate in that kind of a tax break. Well, again, there's two laws here we're talking about. 1244 is what de-risks the earliest investment into the company. And that, so it's the, oh, that's the first one million, that's right. That's the first one million. So under your scenario, if it was an LLC and it raised a quarter million dollars as an LLC from friends and family, then they convert to a C-Corp and raise another two million. Because they had already raised a quarter million dollars of outside money. The next three quarters of a million dollars qualifies for 1244 of that two million dollar raise okay all right now let's say let's take so that's 1244 you have to be a c-corp at the time of investment and it's only for the first million dollars so if, if they raised a million and a half dollars as an llc then nobody gets 1244 coverage okay all the time and that's bad legal advice and bad tax advice period there's no excuse for it especially for those early investors they got screwed I've worked with a CPA who did the modeling that says, wait a second, the op if you take the operating losses that flow through through the LLC model to the founders who don't need them, they're not making any money, by the way. And founders own most of the company, so they capture most of the NOLs through that LLC structure. And they don't need the write-offs. They're not making any money. Right? That's always the justification. Well, the, the operating losses flow through the investors. Yeah, but most of them go to the founders, and they're not making any money. They don't need them. Right, okay. because they're the largest shareholders. So. Older. They don't need them. It's bad advice. There's, and if you literally model an LLC versus a C-Corp, because the net operating losses get retained inside a C-Corp that shelters future profits. So once they turn cash flow positive, those NOLs that were carried forward, you now have tax-free cash flow because it's sheltered by your carry-forward NOLs. So again, there is no justification for the advice entrepreneurs get. If they could qualify for a, a QSBS, they should do it so that the earliest investors get the 1244 risk mitigation. Now, back to your, your question. If that company converts from a LLC to a C-Corp and raises money, those L original investors that were in that convertible note that convert to at the C-Corp conversion, their clock starts ticking right then for that tax-free profit window of five years. So that becomes the date that the clock starts and they have to hold it five years to get the tax-free profits. It doesn't go from when they originally invested in the LLC safe note, but when it converted to the C-Corp. Okay. Wow. That was a great golden nugget there at the end for everybody. So it's really valuable. And yep. you can go back and your taxes. You could probably go capture some, you probably pay too much in taxes on your gains and losses on your angel investing just by bringing up QSBS to your CPA. And watch wow. their face. Most of them don't know about the law. <laughs> I've embarrassed a lot of CPAs on this. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, gosh, I think that this has been an exciting conversation. Uh, I just, uh, I love this um, bringing, you know, I'm an economist. And so bringing something where you've got data and analytics that you can look at because there, there does seem to, there is a certain predictableness of if you meet certain criteria, it's like, why not? It's so logical. So like, you know, it's like Moneyball. Moneyball. Mm -hmm. Nobody thought that would be true, and yet all of a sudden, guess what? Of course it is, because it's data driven. Yeah. Once you get off of an old model that's largely driven by somebody's perceived ability to pick winners, and you get to data driven outcomes and take a portfolio approach and see it, then everybody goes, of course you got to do it that way. And that's, right. we're in that cusp right now in the venture model of moving off of the old model. So, yeah. All right. So those folks listening in right now, you know, if you're in a fund or you're one of those investors that may not have enough cap uh, liquidity to be able to create your own portfolio and you find an angel fund or a venture fund that you want to be a part of, get them to make that a criteria that they need to be using these kind of analytics and this kind of approach and the fun that you're doing and ask or just keep knocking on the door until you have them or, or don't invest. get to know Joe and he'll tell you who's using the tool, right? Because it's free for the angel and the funds to use it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. all right, go to angelspan.com and it's just like it's spelled, uh, sounds A-N-G-E-L-S-P-A-N.com 
and you and Joe's contact information on LinkedIn is through there. Is that the best way for people to reach you? Or you've got well, you got an intake form on the, that as well. Yeah. And yep. then there's the, the the videos and things that we're going to provide. So. Yep. Thank you very much for taking the time to come and share all this information with my audience. And thank you very much. Onwards and upwards, Joe. Happy to help. Be, thank, you for, be, thank you for having me. Good going forward. And I'm going to be uh, incorporating your tools into, the, into what I do as well. So, uh, and uh, folks, stay tuned if you're listening to the podcast because there's some additional information that will play at the end of this. So, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a entrepreneur's resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources, and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings, is a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network, and our sponsors, and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.